Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. What I want to do this morning is I want to read our section of Scripture. I want to pray and ask God's blessing because this is going to be a different sermon uh, than I've really ever preached and uh, there's going to be a lot more academic things inside of this that I'm going to try and get to quickly, but we have to get to them. And I want to get through them to get through the text. But the reason why all of these things will be happening this morning is if you start in chapter 7, verse 53, you'll see a bracket and a, and a footnote, more than likely. And then if you drop down to chapter 8, verse 11, you'll see the end of a bracket, meaning something that we need to dive into this morning. This is a very big section of Scripture, a very well-known section of Scripture. So I want to read it, pray, ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll dive in. John chapter 7, verse 53. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. And from now on, sin no more. God, please bless our time. Give us uh, a sobriety in our spirit. I pray for just an, an added measure of grace this morning as we dive into things that are technical, um, are necessary, but God, I pray that you would grant grace in the speaking of these technicalities uh, so that we would understand the, the motivation for why we need to study these things. And then let us spend time, let us just savor our time in this text so that we would see Jesus and behold him in such a way that we would hear these words spoken to our hearts I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray this morning, if there are any here that are not in Christ Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see their need for a Savior. And that today would be the day of salvation. Bless our time now, we pray in your name. Amen. As we come to chapter 8... From the outset, again, this is going to be the the first, hopefully just about a quarter of this 
sermon. I don't even know if you can call it a sermon. It's going to be a little bit more academic. But from the outset, I just want to let you know this is going to be weird or weirder than we normally do uh, on Sunday mornings because of these brackets. Most scholars of the New Testament believe that this section of Scripture where the brackets are, 753 to 811, should not be in the Bible. I would agree with them. I don't think that this is God's inspired word. Um, Let me give you just a couple so that you don't just take my word for it. Uh, D.A. Carson writes, Despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote altogether. Uh, Bruce Metzger, uh, one of the world's uh, great authorities in the text of the New Testament until he died in 2007, said the evidence for the non-Johannine, so non-John, origin of the, and this is another academic word, pericope, just means um, paragraph, of the adulteress is overwhelming. So the evidence that this is not, that this section of scripture is not from John originally is overwhelming. Leon Morris said, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Andreas Kostenberger said, this represents overwhelming evidence that the section is not from John. And Herman Ritterboss said, the evidence points to an unstable tradition that was not originally part of of an ecclesiastically accepted text, meaning the church did not accept this as from John. So why do these scholars come to the place where they say it should be in brackets, meaning it shouldn't be in the original Bible, in the original text? How do they get there? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, this account is missing from all of the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. So all of the Greek manuscripts before the 5th century of the Gospel of John do not include this. So we would say it was added later. Maybe your footnote even says that. It was added later. That means that as the Gospel of John was circulating, somebody added this section after the 5th century. Number two, all of the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John and passed directly from John 7.52 to John 8.12. So if you're looking for commentary from early church fathers, they don't comment on this passage at all, because they didn't have it, because it wasn't supposed to be in Scripture. Number three, uh, going off of that, the text flows perfectly from chapter 7.52 to 8.12. If you leave out the story that we're going to talk about this morning, the text flows as if it was never supposed to be there, because it was never supposed to be there. Number four, no early church fathers cite the passage or quote the passage before the 12th century when dealing with the Gospel of John. Again, if you're looking for commentaries on this passage from early church fathers, you won't find one until the 12th century. So pastors weren't preaching on this text until the 12th century. Why? Because they didn't have this as a text. It was not in their original uh, Bibles, if you will. Two more. Number five, when the story starts to appear in manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, it shows up in three other places. So it's not uniformly in chapter 8, 1 through 11. 
It shows up sometimes after chapter 7, verse 36, sometimes after chapter 7, verse 44, sometimes after chapter 21, verse 25, and it even shows up in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21, verse 38. So it seems like these Gospels are getting circulated and passed around, and somebody says, I've got a little section of a great account, a great narrative, Uh, let's put it here, and let's put it here, and let's put, and they just keep putting it, maybe sewing it into the binding of these Bibles and putting it in there. But it doesn't fit, and it's found all over the place. Finally, number six, and this is a very, this is a key point. The style and vocabulary of this section of Scripture is more unlike the rest of John's Gospel than any other paragraph in the Gospel. Just to give you a a definition of that, there are 16 Greek words in these 16, or it's 12 verses. There are 16 Greek words in 12 verses that are only used here, that are used nowhere else in the Gospel of John. So 16 words in just a few verses that are only used here. For instance, if you go to chapter 8, verse 3, the word scribe, John never uses the word scribe ever in the Gospel of John. It's used here once because I don't think this is John who wrote it. So that's the why. Why is it in brackets? Why do we think that? Because of those six reasons. How do we get those reasons? It's a science called textual criticism, and this is where we're going to get just a little bit technical, so bear with me, and then we'll keep moving. But I want you to know this because two reasons. Number one, people will ask you about the the veracity of the Scriptures, the truthfulness of the Scriptures, and one of their arguments will be this. I have been asked this question before. How do we know, we would call it the transmission of the Bible, how do we know that we have exactly what God wants us to have? Because aren't there places in the Bible that shouldn't be there? Like Mark 16 is in brackets. John chapter 5, we already covered that, is in brackets. What do we do with that? Why do we have bracketed statements? Does that make our foundation of the confidence of Scripture a little bit wobbly? I would say it doesn't. It actually furthers our confidence. And that's what I want to prove to you, and that would be the second point. I want you not only to be able to answer other objections, but number two, to be able to answer for yourself the confidence of the, re- the reliability of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. I do not believe that this section is truly Scripture. Therefore, I don't believe it's truly inerrant. Therefore, we have to be very careful as we, quote-unquote, preach it because we're not preaching the Word of God. And that brings a dilemma to me <laughs> because I look and I go, well, should we just skip it? This is so well known. This passage is so well known. So I don't want to skip it. There are pastors that skip it. There are commentaries. I'm I'm reading through my commentaries this week. John chapter 7, just making notes. Where's John? I mean, some of them like literally just moved on to the next section. They didn't even, one person gave me a footnote that said this was not originally in the manuscript, so we're not talking about it. Well, that's great, but help me. (laughs) I want help here. You're just leaving me stranded. So how do we get this? All this comes from textual criticism. Textual criticism is a science of figuring out what the original material is and what isn't the original material. What was the original material of the Word of God? The reason why we have to have a science of this is because the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and it was not printed, it was not put into a printing press until 1516, William Tyndale. You should all read Steve Lawson's biography on William Tyndale to understand uh, he died so that you can have a Bible. He died so that you can have a Bible. Um, 
But because 1516 was the first time that the Bible was printed, was copied in a printing press, before then, so for about 1,500 years, the Bible was just copied by hand. That's why we call them manuscripts. They were manually written down. We do not have an original copy of anything in the Bible, of anything. Now, a lot of people go, well, that's, that's a bad thing. We don't have any original. Like, we don't have John's first handwritten. We don't have it. We only have copies, and we have a lot of copies. But here's why I think it's a good thing that we don't have originals. If we had originals, uh, we would be enshrining them, having people pay money to come see them, you know, kiss them and they get well of their cancer or whatever. We would be doing idolatrous things if we had the originals. So we don't have the originals. I think that's a good thing. We have, as far as we know, copies of originals. But the issue is, with these manuscripts, with these copies, we have an abundance of copies. For instance, let me just give you some other um, writers, some other authors. Uh, Plato, for instance. Plato wrote from 427 to 347 B.C. So 400, 300 B.C., Plato wrote. The first copy of his writings that we have accessible to us today, the first copies date back to around A.D. 900. So 400 B.C. to A.D. 900. So we've got 1,200 years between when Plato wrote and the copies that we have. 1,200 years. And how many copies do we have of Plato's writings? We have seven copies. Um, Caesar, he wrote down a number of things uh, about the wars that he was a part of. Uh, From around 100 to 44 B.C., the earliest manuscripts that we have of his writings go back to A.D. 900, so about a 1,000 years removed from when he wrote to the copies that we have, and there are 10 available to us today. You can Google this. You can search this all over the Internet. The New Testament written in 50 to 100 A.D., the first copy that we have, first manuscript that we have of the New Testament dates to around 120 to 130 A.D. So 50 to 100 A.D. it was written. The first copy that we have is 120 to 130 A.D. So less than 70 years removed, as opposed to 1,200 or 1,000 years removed from Plato and Caesar. And then here's the biggest... Here's the biggest uh, note that we need to make. Plato had seven copies found. Caesar had ten copies found. There are 5,801 Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. And if you include other languages like Latin and Armenian and other different languages, you have over 25,000 copies of the the New Testament. We have over 25,000 copies of New Testament manuscripts. So, only 70 years removed from when they were originally written and over 25,000 copies of them versus 1,200 years removed and seven copies for Plato. This is very helpful for us when we're trying to do this work of textual criticism. And I'm going to employ a couple different authors to help me out with this just to show you the massive evidence that we have that your Bible is reliable and it's inerrant. Dan Wallace says this, uh, 
he has noted, one, one author quoted him as um, said about him that he is the evangelical Christianity's premier active textual critic today. I would believe that. I, I studied uh, from his book, from his notes um, when I was in seminary. He says this, New Testament scholars face an embarrassment of riches compared to the data the classical Greek and Latin scholars have to contend with. The average classical author's literary remains number no more than 20 copies. We have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. Not only this, but the extant manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time that he wrote. For the New Testament, we are waiting mere decades for surviving copies. So virtually all historical scholars would say there's no reason to doubt what Julius Caesar wrote. There's no reason to doubt what Plato wrote. There's no reason to doubt what Aristotle wrote. We have it. It's historical, even though it's so far removed, over 1,200 years, and so few copies, they still take it at face value. It's factual, it's, it's historical, it's true. F.F. Bruce says it this way, No classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the original. So nobody would argue that, but when it comes to the Bible, when we're only 70 years removed, people will say, oh, we can't trust it can't trust it. So we have an enormous blessing of having so many and having it so close to the original writing. In fact, the Gospel of John is the earliest uh, manuscript that we have. Um, dating to around 120 to 130 AD, we have John 18, 31 through 33 and following. We have a manuscript containing the entire New Testament, all of the books in the New Testament, um, from about 350 A.D. on. So we have all of these books, we have all of these collections that add up to a total of over 25,000 manuscripts of the, Greek New Test- of the New Testament, some in Greek, some in Latin, some in uh, Gothic, Coptic, Armenian, so many different languages, but they all add up to over 25,000. So this is so helpful for us. When you come to a passage like this, you come to John chapter 8, if you have two copies of the Gospel of John, if you only have two, and one has John 8, 1 through 11, and one doesn't, what do you do? How do you pick? But since we have over 25,000 copies, we can look and we can see, okay, um, 24,383 have this section omitted, it's not there, and whatever the other number would be, because I don't know math, would, does not have that. So the evidence, the majority evidence here, is very clear. And you can do that through all sorts of, uh, we would call them variants, variations of the text. F.F. F. Bruce puts it this way again. He says, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, which it does. So the more manuscripts you have, the more variations you're going to have. But it also increases proportionately the means of correcting those errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is, in truth, remarkably small. So there are variations in your Bible from bracketed statements that maybe should be there, probably shouldn't be there, that we don't know. There are certain sections in the Bible that maybe shouldn't be there, we don't know. But here's the key, and we're almost done with the technical aspect. Here's the key. In the variations that are in Scripture, none of those variations change any Christian doctrine. Nothing about your spiritual life changes. If this is in Scripture, 
nothing changes. If this isn't in Scripture, nothing changes. Um, Again, F.F. Bruce says it this way. Fortunately, if the great number of manuscripts... Oh, that was... I already read that one. Sorry. Paul Wagner is the other one. He affirms what Bruce is saying. He says it this way. It is important to keep in perspective the fact that only a very small part of the text is in question. Listen to these approximations. Less than 9% of the Old Testament is questionable variations, and less than 6% of the New Testament is in question. Of these questions, most variants make little difference to the meaning of any passage. So it is fair to say that the verses, chapters, and books of the Bible would read largely the same and would leave the same impression with the reader, even if one adopted virtually every possible alternative reading to those now serving as the basis for current English translations. He closes by saying this, It is reassuring at the end of the day to find that the general result of all of these discoveries and all of this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we what we have in our hands is substantial in its integrity and is the veritable word of God. Dan Wallace says no essential affirmation of Christian doctrine would be affected by these variants. And he Dan Wallace has debated with there's a a gentleman named Bart Ehrman. Uh, he used to be involved in evangelical Christianity. He, he left uh, Christianity because his main reason was he did not believe the Bible was the word of God. And so he has written books to try and say, I don't think that the Bible is confidently the word of God. I think that it is, it, it's erroneous. It has uh, fallibility inside of it. And he goes to some of these sections. And so Dan Wallace and Bart Ehrman have had debates. They've had three, I think, as far as I know. They've had three debates. Dan Wallace says, no essential affirmation of Christian doctrine would be affected by the variants. Even Bart Ehrman, as they have de- debated, has conceded this point in the three debates that I've had with him. Meaning, Bart Ehrman saying, well, we can't trust the Bible because of all the variants. And Dan Wallace says, well, if we changed all of those variants to say whatever you think that they're supposed to say, nothing would change in Christian doctrine, correct? And he says, yes, correct. Finally, D.A. Carson says, what is at stake is a purity of text of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing that we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. So, Gospel of John is written. Uh, Greek manuscripts abound. And for at least six centuries... This section of, of, of the Gospel of John is not in Scripture. That's why you have it in brackets. And I believe that we can confidently say, because of the over 25,000 manuscripts that we have, we can do the evidence, we can look at the evidence, we can do the work of textual criticism to say, we know what should be here and what shouldn't be here. It's a blessing. I believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe the Bible is infallible. I believe the Bible is authoritative. And I believe that this section should not be included in those statements. So, what's a preacher to do when he holds to the inerrant word of God and you come to a place of Scripture that isn't Scripture? Do you preach it? Because if you preach it, you're preaching something that's errant. That's dangerous. Um, D.A. Carson, uh, Metzger, F.F. Bruce, and many others believe that this is an actual event that happened. Historically, an actual real event. Uh, Bruce Metzger says it this way, the account, this account 
has all of the earmarks of historical veracity. D.A. Carson says there's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. So, this event probably happened, but it was not meant to be included in your Bible. And that's the way I want to preach it. This is a historical event that happened. I believe it actually happened on Tuesday of the Passion Week. But it it was never meant to be a part of sacred scripture. It's not inerrant. It's not God's word. But it does not tell us anything that would detract from other places of the inerrant word of God. It doesn't tell us anything that disagrees. It's not like Mark 16. Mark 16 has a bracketed section that you scratch your head. You read it, and we're going to get to it in Family Bible, and you go, this, this is weird. You don't do that with this. With Mark 16, you actually have to go to that section and cancel out what's being written because some of it's actually factually false. You don't have to do that here. I believe this is a true historical account. It just was never meant to be included in God's word. But I think that we can take the point of this text and find that point in other places of Scripture. And so as we go through it, we're going to go through it rather quickly. But I want you to see, I think that there's three main emphases that are here in this text. Number one, Jesus is exalting himself over the law as the fulfillment of the law. Um, He's going head to head with the law of Moses here through the Pharisees. And he's going to go over the law and fulfill the law. He's going to do that in a brilliant way. Number two, he's also going to change an appointed punishment for the law or from the law. The law is going to demand this is the punishment, and Jesus is going to tweak it. And then number three, he's going to reestablish righteousness, the woman's righteousness on the basis of grace, which I believe those three elements are found in the entirety of the New Testament. So, technical part done. Now let's go to a little sermonette, if you will, on this portion of Scripture. In John 7... We are in the Feast of Tabernacles, and John 8, verse 12, is going to continue in the Feast of Tabernacles, and so I believe that those two should be connected, and we should pull this section out. I don't think that this happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. I think that this actually happened on Tuesday of the Passion Week. We talked about that two weeks ago during Palm Sunday. Tuesday of the Passion Week was when the Pharisees and the Sadducees got together, and they said, we need to get the crowds on our side. We want Jesus dead. We can't take him away from the crowds because they love him. So the way that we can get him dead is to get the crowds to turn against him. And then we can say, should we kill him? And the crowds will say, yes, we should kill him. They, by the way, they never got that to happen. And that's why they had to do everything that they did in killing him in the middle of the night. I believe that most Jewish people woke up on Friday morning, uh, a little bit of a, of a coma still happening because of the celebration of the Passover and the drinking of the four cups of the wine, as we talked about with the Passover Seder. So I think that there was uh, probably a sleeping in on Friday. And when you awoke and you open your windows and you look out towards uh, Golgotha, you see three crosses and you wonder, well, it's a normal day for uh, Romans and poor Jews that should have kept the law but didn't. And as you wander around in the marketplace, somebody says to you, one of those guys is Jesus. And no way, that's not Jesus. I think that's the way that the Jews woke up um, on Friday morning of the Passion Week. So Tuesday, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to turn the crowd, but they can't. But the way they're trying to do it is by asking Jesus some questions that are going to uh, polarize him with the people. You remember one of those questions was, who do we pay taxes to? 
Remember, we talked about that two weeks ago. Who do we pay taxes to? Caesar? That's an excellent question by the Pharisees because all the Jewish people hate the Romans. So when the Pharisees say, hey, crowds, let's ask the, the Messiah a question here. Uh, Messiah, rabbi, teacher, um, do, do you think that we should pay taxes to Caesar? The crowd is expecting him to say, no way. In fact, we're going to conquer them in a couple days. But Jesus says, whose image and likeness is on it? Okay, it's Caesar. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. And the people go, man, that's a good answer. Wow. Nobody spoke like this guy. And they love him even more. So the Pharisees, after every question that they're trying to get the crowds on their side, the Pharisees lose more and more and more and more ground. I believe that this is one of those questions. We know it's a test. We know it's a test. They were saying this, verse 6, testing him. So I think this happened on Tuesday. Tuesday, Jesus took over the temple. Monday, he cleansed the temple. He took over the temple on Monday. Tuesday, he was still taking over the temple, teaching, preaching. They were trying to test him. It wasn't working. I think this fits right there. So, verse 1, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Um, He would do that Monday night, sleep on the Mount of Olives, sleep in Bethany on Monday night. Early in the morning, verse 2, he would come again into the temple. All the people are coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach. Luke 21 tells us that this is what would happen. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, again, we already talked about John's use of that word scribes. He never uses it, so I don't think that this is John uh, writing it. John uses chief priests. The scribes were expositors of the scripture. They studied the scripture. Some of them were Pharisees. Some of them were Sadducees, but um, they were all religious leaders. So the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus, bring a woman caught in the very act of adultery. This is a blatant test. And here's one of the reasons why we know this is a blatant test. There's no such thing as adultery with one person. There's no such thing as adultery with one guilty party. The question is, where's the guy? There was uh, an enormous amount of people in the commentaries that included this that used the phrase, maybe he was fleet of foot. They just kept saying that. Maybe he was fleet of foot. I thought, why is that the phrase? Everybody just kept saying that. Maybe this guy was fast and he ran out of there. Maybe it was a setup. Some people think it was a setup. Maybe it was... Uh, their male-dominated culture that they let him go. There's a number of reasons why we can answer this, but the bottom line is this is a test. They don't, the Pharisees do not care that God's holiness has been offended. That's key. They're not bringing this woman to Jesus because they are offended by God's holiness being offended. They're bringing this woman to Jesus to test Jesus. They hate Jesus. They don't love God's holiness. So they bring her out. And they say, verse 5, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Here's your test. Here's a t- it's a good test. Because if Jesus says, Yeah, that's what the law said to do, but I don't really think we should do that anymore because I love grace, then the Pharisees are going to turn around to the crowds and say, See, he doesn't love the law. He's not your Messiah. But if he says, yes, we should stone her, let's pick up stones, let's start stoning her, the crowds will go, man, this guy's all been about love and mercy, and I don't like the feel of this. Why doesn't he take care of her? Why isn't he arguing with the Pharisees about where's the man? All So this is a good 
dilemma. This is a good test by the Pharisees yet again. It's an evil test. In the law of Moses, just two, two passages, Deuteronomy 22, 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 10. Let me read them to you. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. They're both guilty. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So yes, the law of Moses demanded that this woman be put to death. But again, the Pharisees aren't coming saying, we need to deal with sin and purge sin from our midst. We need to deal with sin rightly. They're, they're saying, we hate Jesus. Let's try and kill Jesus. So, verse 6, as they're saying these words, Jesus stoops down and he starts writing on the ground. Starts scribbling in the sand. What is he writing? This is another place where there are just, the, the, the opinions on this are a dime a dozen. Some people say that he was writing down his verdict, as the Romans would do. They would write down a verdict as they hear a trial. They would write down the verdict, and then they would read it. In which case, if that's what's happening here, he's just going to—he's writing down what he's going to say in verse seven. He was without sin among you. Let him be the first to stone her, to throw a stone at her. Some say that he's quoting and he's writing down Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. This is just. So when you get into speculation, how did they get Jeremiah 17, 13? Why did somebody just go, oh, I think that's what he was writing down. I mean, I understand it says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. So somebody went, well, Jesus is writing down, writing down, boom. It was probably, this is probably what happened. Somebody's writing in their Bible reading plan or reading in their Bible reading plan and they get through Jeremiah and they see the words writing down and they think, oh, I'm preaching on John 8 in a little while. That must be the connection. And they wrote it down in the commentary. I think that's all that happened. Some say that he was writing down, he was quoting those passages from Deuteronomy 22, 22 and Leviticus 20, 10, as if to say, I know the law. I know what you're telling me. Others say that he was writing down sins that these people had committed. I tend to go with the latter because uh, he is going to stay in verse 7. He is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops down and he writes again. So internally, he's writing down the sins that he told them. If you're without sin, go ahead and cast a stone. And by the way, as I'm writing these sins down, let me just look at you in the eye. Okay, you were angry at your mom this morning and you, you know, maybe something to that effect. Um, diving into their conscience with the law. The bottom line is, we don't know. We don't need to know. We don't need to know. All we know is that he stoops over. He starts writing. They persist. You must answer us. And his answer is brilliant. Whoever is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. This is not a basis for social justice. A lot of people will go here and will say, see, we should, uh, we, we can't judge somebody if we are not uh, holy, we shouldn't judge anybody else. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is going to attack the Pharisees after they were trying to test him. So he's attacking their sense of self-righteousness. 
They didn't love the law. They hated grace. They hated Jesus. They didn't love righteousness. So he's going to attack that in them. And he preaches this constantly. This isn't a new thing. Again, this doesn't change our Savior's character. This, this is going along perfectly with what Jesus says in other places. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, as he said in Matthew chapter 9, is if you are sinless, go ahead and do this not as a, as a pattern for social justice, period, but to attack their understanding of their own sinlessness. They were not sinless. They were unrighteous through and through. We already saw this in John chapter 7, verse 23, but Jesus said, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well? You don't understand the law. They claim to love the law, but they don't truly love the law because the law was supposed to point them to their need for a savior. So he says that he stoops down. He starts writing again. Verse nine, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court. Maybe the older ones had their conscience pricked first as they have such a litany of sins against them that they realize, yeah, I, I can't throw a stone. I can't do that. I can't judge her. But the bottom line is they all leave. This is on the Temple Mount. This is in the temple. Hundreds of thousands of people can walk around in the temple at one time. And there are two people in the temple right now. Jesus and this woman. In verse 10, Jesus addresses her. Woman, that's not a bad term. Jesus called his mother woman. It's just a term to make sure that the boundaries are there. It's not necessarily... um, uh, uh, It has endearment in it, but it's not necessarily affectionate to try and blur those lines. Um, He just says, woman, where are they? Where's the crowd that had the stones that were picking them up to try and kill you? Did, did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. Lord. Your Bible might translate that as sir. It's better to be translated Lord. And I think that that's the key here, that she says, Lord, I am your servant. I am your slave. You are my master. I will submit to you. Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. From now, go and sin no more. Jesus is saying to this woman that she has a clean slate right then and there. Just picture this scene in your mind. In the Temple Mount, woman caught in adultery, and specifically, the Pharisees say, in the very act. So more than likely, she's not very modest at this point. In the very act, ripped out of the bedroom, thrown in front of Jesus. And Jesus, in that moment, this is, this is what's so beautiful to me in this moment. With all these people watching this woman with shame and scorn and hatred. By the end of the time, Jesus gets their eyes to fix on him and not her anymore. He gets 
all of the shame and scorn that's directed at her to somehow get pointed to him. No one to condemn. And so he says, they're gone, and your sinfulness now can be completely cleansed. You are righteous in this moment, not by what you've done, but by my grace. Your righteousness has been rebuilt upon my grace. The Pharisees, here's, well, let's be honest, right? It's a good thing not to sleep with somebody who's not your spouse. That's a good thing. Don't do that. But, even though that's God's intention for marriage, if you do that perfectly, if you never commit adultery perfectly for the entirety of your life, like many of these Pharisees probably either did or said that they did, you are no less perfect in God's eyes, no less needing of a Redeemer, no less needing of a Savior, just because you kept that portion of the law. If you keep that portion of the law and you stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? You say, because I never committed adultery. First of all, God would say to you, if you looked at a woman with less in your heart, looked at a man with less in your heart, you committed adultery. But second, he would say what James says. So what if you were perfect in that point of the law? You broke the law in other places. And once you break it in one place, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. You're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So, the Pharisees are pursuing holiness. They're pursuing sinlessness in the, in the area of adultery. I'm pursuing that. But they're pursuing it without the motivation that Jesus gives to this woman at the end. Go and sin no more. Don't commit adultery anymore. Just like the Pharisees are, are despising adultery and not committing adultery, trying not to, do the same but with a completely different motivation. For the Pharisees, their motivation was, I want to be perfect. For the woman, her motivation was, I can't be perfect. I've just been given grace. The horrific death that I was supposed to die in this very moment by people stoning me to death, Jesus took that out of the way. He removed that. Just like for you and me, the horrific death that you and I deserve because of our sin, to to live in everlasting torment in hell under God's wrath forever, God took that. So here's my plea to you. Don't ever pursue holiness without first understanding the grace of God. If you do pursue holiness without first understanding the grace of God, you will be a Pharisee. If you pursue not sinning without an experience of amazing grace, you will become a Pharisee. You will be legalistic. You will be moralistic. You will be hypocritical. But once you understand the grace of God, now you have motivation. Now you have a reason not to sleep with somebody who's not your spouse. Now you have a reason. God gave you favor and granted you mercy because of his love for you, not because of your goodness. And it's mercy and grace that you can never lose. Grace has come in to change you. So, this sermon is ultimately not from this text. We're using it, but it's from the inerrant truth of the scriptures. And I want to boil it down to just three points in conclusion. I believe that there are three echoes in this section of scripture, in this section of of the gospel of John that shouldn't even be in the gospel of John. There are three echoes of gospel truth elsewhere in the scriptures. 
These are the three echoes that I see in this text that are truthful and inerrant in the rest of the scriptures. Number one, Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. The language is clear. She's thrown into the center uh, of the court is in italics because it could be in the center of the people. Regardless, she is in the middle of everything happening. All eyes are fixed on her, probably not looking too modest, probably in uh, embarrassment, nervousness, shame, scorn, probably crying, maybe bloodied uh, because she'd just been thrown down into the center of the temple. And Jesus, in majestic glory, takes all of that shame and gets it onto him, takes all of their scornful gl- uh, glances and glarings and gets them onto him. As she's the one who should be most embarrassed in that moment, Jesus makes a somewhat fool out of himself by stooping down and scribbling, and all eyes move from her to him. What's he doing? What's he doing? And she is not condemned anymore. Jesus does that with us. He takes all of our shame, all of our scorn, the eyes of the oppressor slowly turn from us to him as he bears all of our sin and all of our shame. Jesus does that perfectly with us. We're going to study this um, over the summer in Luke 15 with the prodigal son. As the prodigal son returns home, muddy, dirty, stinks. He's been sleeping in pig troughs and he's just a mess. The whole city would have had a funeral for him. He comes back. He could have been stoned to death. And as he comes back in all of his disgusting, pig penished nature, the father comes out and hugs him and puts a coat around, a, a jacket around him and says, whatever, whatever smell you have, whatever dirt you have, I'm covering it and I'm embracing it. And now nobody can see your mess because I've taken it all for you. Jesus is our perfect substitute. That's all over the place in the New Testament. Second uh, Corinthians um, 5.21, 1 Peter 3.18, it's all over the place. Number two, Jesus is our defense. We're reading this in Hebrews right now. He's our high priest. He's our defense. I love how this says that one by one they leave and they left her alone. Jesus and one woman on the temple mount, that's it. No accusers. And notice Jesus waits. Jesus waits to speak to this woman till they're all gone. I don't know how long that took, but if we have a lot of people, if we have a big crowd, they're all hanging out there and they're slowly one by one leaving. That's going to take a while. And Jesus is patient and Jesus waits. Even the devil at this very moment, who is the accuser of the brethren, has no valid basis to make an accusation against you. As he says, they're mine. They deserve to die because of their sin. Sin must be punished. Sin must be judged. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You got one thing right, Satan. That's all you got right. They deserve to be judged, but I died. I was judged for them. I was punished for them. He's our defense. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And just as he defended this woman, he defends us every day in heaven. And finally, number three, he's our motivation. Jesus is our motivation. He's our substitute, he's our defense, and he's our motivation. Be holy, the Bible says, as I am holy. Pursue holiness. But there are two motivations for pursuing holiness. Motivation number one, pharisaical motivation. I'm going to pursue being perfect so that I can get to God. Motivation number two is what this woman hears and understands. I'm going to pursue holiness because I've already been brought to God. 
I couldn't get to God on my own. He brought me to himself. He paid for me. He loved me. He died for me. And so I would plead with you this morning, never pursue holiness until you have learned and heard and experienced these words. Neither do I condemn you. Don't ever pursue holiness until those words, neither do I condemn you, permeate your heart, permeate your soul, and give you the motivation towards holiness that you need. This is the whole point of the Bible. Come to Jesus for grace. Come to Jesus in your sin. Come to Jesus in your shame and your scorn. Come to Jesus for grace. And once he lavishes you with grace, go and sin no more. Father, thank you so much for our time in your word this morning. You are truly a gracious Savior. Thank you for these words that are historically true, though they are not inerrant. But they are a beautiful picture of how you love sinners and care for sinners, how you motivate us sinners to righteousness. And so now as we prepare for communion, I pray that our hearts would hear those words, neither do I condemn you, that we would come to you for grace in this moment, receiving grace and then going to sin no more. Not with the motivation of trying to pay you back, not with the motivation of earning our way to God, but with the motivation of we've been bought with a price. It's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. We must glorify God with our bodies. So we do that this morning as we prepare our hearts, and we thank you for being the amazing friend of sinners that you are.